Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. This week I'm joined by Brent Birch. Brent is a uh, local businessman here in Little Rock, Arkansas. He is the author of a really fantastic book called The Grand Prairie that I highly recommend to anybody who's interested in duck hunting in the South, uh, specifically duck hunting in Arkansas. Just kind of a wealth of knowledge about the history and culture of hunting for you know the last 100 120 years or so of uh duck hunting here in arkansas and he's also the editor of greenhead magazine which is a magazine that comes uh out of little rock arkansas uh, i think once a year but it's a, a waterfowl centered magazine that he's the editor of as well uh this week is gonna start uh kind of a two-week sort of a deep dive into ducks as it as it were, uh, probably the most duck-centric and waterfowl-centric podcast that I've done uh, thus far. I, I do want to give a little bit of a precursor to that, and uh, I was kind of talking to Brent about this after we recorded the podcast, but uh, there's really not a, I don't think there's a, a truthful way to talk about waterfowling and to talk about waterfowling in Arkansas without giving some strong opinions and uh, Brent has some opinions. Uh, I've got opinions. You'll hear me talk about that in this episode and also in the episode that'll come out next week. And uh, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, everybody might not agree with me or agree with Brent or agree with whoever I have on the podcast uh, about those waterfowling opinions. And I'm all right with that. Uh, I, I don't want to be at odds with other hunters, but I do have opinions uh, about best practices and the way things should be done. And I think that we all do. And I think it's disingenuous to pretend that that's not the case. So while uh, I will always lean towards uh, kind of the caveat that if it's legal and you want to participate in those uh, sorts of uh enterprises, then, you know, you're not doing anything wrong by the letter of the law. And I'm fine with that. And I'm happy to let people live as they want to. But I do have opinions about, you know, kind of best practices. And I, I think that this conversation is going to talk about maybe some ways that we can look forward uh, a little bit and maybe make some adjustments to the way that we're hunting. It's, it's given me a lot of food for thought. And I think that's important. I think that's a really important way to live your life. And I think uh, specifically that's an important way to approach hunting. Uh, kind of that Maya Angelou quote, you know, when you know better, you do better. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of go ahead and get that out of the way. Uh, and also invite folks, uh, 
you know, if you have opinions that you want to share with me, I'm, I'm happy to have a back and forth with you as long as we keep it, uh, you know, respectful. So, uh, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or, you know, through email there at the website. And, uh, we can talk about some of this stuff, but anyway, this is going to be a very waterfowl centric podcast. Like I said, with Brent Birch and, uh, I hope so much that you'll enjoy it. Stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome back to the podcast. Right now I'm sitting in downtown Little Rock at the Little Rock Technology Park, uh, kind of right here in the heart of downtown Little Rock. And I'm joined this week by Brent Birch, uh, the what, the executive director That's of right. the Little Rock Technology Park. Uh, what did you say? You're, what are you, the editor, the chief editor over at Greenhead Magazine? That's right. That's right. right. And author of the book, The Grand Prairie. That's it. Uh, it's kind of one of the seminal books in modernity about Arkansas duck hunting and waterfowling culture. And uh, yeah, I guess Brent and I have talked a little bit back and forth on social media and the the internet for, I don't know, maybe a year. Yeah, maybe a year or two. And uh, so excited to finally be able to meet you and sit down and talk with you for a bit, buddy. Uh, yeah, likewise. Yeah, thanks for having me. Mm. So as usually happens, uh, before we record these podcasts, we've been sitting here for probably an hour just talking about stuff and probably a podcast, uh, worth of information <laughs> has already been disseminated, but, uh, you know, this podcast is largely about hunting. Uh, well, maybe that's not true. This podcast is in the hunting realm, definitely, but it's, it's really kind of designed to be an examination of craft, uh, an examination of people who have made a way for themselves and kind of put their own particular spin on things. Uh, and since I am so firmly rooted, uh, in, you know, waterfowling and specifically waterfowling here in Arkansas, which at one time just meant, uh, ducks. And now I think folks understand that's kind of been expanded in, and to a lot of people starting to pursue speckle belly geese, which I've spent, you know, the last few years really spending a lot of time going after. Uh, Brent's a, is a great person to talk to about that. So I'd kind of like to just start this discussion off with uh, a question I don't really ask that much of the people on this podcast, but like, how did you get started uh, duck hunting? Like what, I, I kind of gather that it was like a, a sort of traditional father to son type thing, but yeah. So how did that start for you? Yeah, it definitely was, uh, started tagging along with my dad at five, six years old. Um, he, he didn't grow really grow up duck hunting either. He's from Fort Smith. Uh, and his dad hunted in the Arkansas river bottoms up there, but he didn't get to go a lot. It's pretty kind of dangerous hunting. Uh, so he didn't really start hunting until he went to work for a bank here in North Little Rock that had a corporate club. Um, this was a bank owned by Frank Line, the Frank Line family, Line family, um, who some people follow Arkansas waterfowling history know that they own Wingmeat, okay. which is a obviously a historical famous uh, club. But the club they owned prior to that was at Crockett's Bluff, uh, which is near Casco, east of Stuttgart on the White River. Mm-hmm. And that was the Lines family's club prior to the purchase of Wingmeat. So when they switched over and purchased wingmead they turned the lodge and everything at crockett's bluff into a 
a corporate club for their, uh, they owned a couple of different co companies. They owned a Coca-Cola bottler, they owned a John Deere tractor dealer, and they owned this bank. And that's where the, these companies were allowed to take their customers. And so my dad, being in the banking business, would have certain uh, days that they would be allowed to take customers. And so he would be busy entertaining customers, and I ran around with all the guides. Um, this is when I was, you know, 8, 9, 10, 12, 13 years old, somewhere in there. Um, and that's just kind of when I became fascinated uh, with the sport. Not only, you know, um, the, the, the hunting and the killing part of it, but just the culture part of it, too. It's a super historic lodge. Uh, it's on the National Historic Register um, and, uh, and all that. Uh, super cool hunting the White River Bottoms. Uh, this is all public ground now. All the ground that they hunted at that time is now all public ground. Um, but, uh, that's kind of where I got introduced to it. And then he had a, uh, a club he was a part of in parallel to that, that we got to go in much smaller groups and, in in the true father, son, I had a brother, younger brother that also hunted a lot at the time. Um, and so we spent a lot of time doing that and that's kind of where it all started. And so if you're hunting, if you're hunting like these, uh, what people think of when they think of duck hunting in Arkansas, like flooded hardwood bottoms, were you pretty much mostly shooting greenheads back then? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, and uh, in, in people that, that hunt those white river bottoms, they'll know uh, Round Pond. Uh, that was where, uh, it was. that was the best spot. Uh, of course, there's a bazillion horseshoe lakes in Arkansas. Yeah. But that was another one. Uh, but those were primarily the, the two key places. These are huge blinds that could hunt, you know, 15, 20 people. Not that we had that many all the time, but they were, they were big blinds. Yeah. Um, and that was uh, kind of where I got exposed to it on. And, and of course, it was big groups of mallards. Uh, you know, those those white river ducks tend to tend to bunch up. You weren't shooting a lot of singles and pairs. It was, you know, five, six hundred, seven hundred fifty ducks in a group back in really? the day. That big? Oh yeah, yeah. Wow. And they'd be little tiny specks in the sky. And those guys could could get on those. You know, they they blew those D twos back for you know they became so popular. Mm -hmm. You know as they are now, but they could make those things, uh, holler at those ducks way up there. And you see, and once they start building and there'd be more of them and more of them, more of them, and they hit those big river lakes and those big groups, um, pretty cool sight to see, especially as a kid. Yeah, that's wild. I don't, well, I know for sure. I've never seen a group of mallards that big. Uh, I'm trying to, what's the biggest wad I've ever seen actually work down. If I was going to tell somebody, I'd probably tell them 100, and truth, probably like 75, yeah. you know, which is I'm stoked about. Uh, heck, I was bragging the other day to somebody that uh, we were – I was hunting with some buddies, and maybe like three days before the end of season this year, we were hunting a, a, a public hole. And uh, I was like, man, we were, we were getting big groups of birds, man, like 50 at a time, which for the last couple of years, that's been – for me anyway, that's been a lot of birds. Oh, yeah. Uh, it has been, it's been, it's definitely different. Uh, so what time, uh, what time period are we talking about here? Like, this will be early eighties. Okay. So like just kind of the, when, the, when water yeah. valley wasn't that great. I mean, you know, we had the short seasons. That was when, Oh 30, really? Yeah. That was when the point system was going on. Uh, describe, describe that, that point, so you, oh, yeah. that point system to people. Cause I think a lot of folks wouldn't know about that. Yeah. That's, uh, it's, what's interesting to, not to get away from that, but, you know, you hear a lot of people 
talking about we need to go back to less days and, and change our limits because when the 40, 50, 60 year old crowd was hunting back then when duck season didn't get so good, they adjusted the season all the time. We go from a 30 day season to a 45 day season to, to six ducks to five ducks to two ducks. I mean, it was all over the place. You know, now we've been in this 60 day six duck limit for 26 years now, I think something like that. But, uh, yeah, the point system, each duck was assigned a point value and that dictated your limit. And it was also supposed to work in sequential order. So like a mallard hen would be 75 points. I don't remember what the point values were, but I can get in the ballpark. A mallard hen would be worth 75 and a drake would be worth 25, for example. Well, if you killed that hen first, you were at 75 and you could only kill one more mallard. So you could kill a drake and you were done. But if you killed three drakes first, the hen could be your last duck. So you go over the 100 points. But if the hen was the last duck you shot, that's okay because that's what pushed you over. But it was the, it took this abacus to keep up with, yeah, <laughs> with what you say. were doing because every duck was assigned some different value. Um, and so, you know, I don't know how many people really followed the the order they were shot in. Yeah, that w- that would be arduous. I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure there was a lot of seeing what was there at the end of the day and making that fit. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. But, uh, yeah, that didn't last too long. Uh, I, I've actually got some, some graphics on my, uh, computer that I found, uh, that actually laid out the point system and, and had this chart and what duck was, was what point value and, and all that from, I want to say it was like, I don't know, 82, 83, somewhere in there. But there were, you know, that was not the heyday of duck hunting, but because you, you, we had some tough seasons breeding wise, and that's all they they went on back then. There wasn't the H and the you know adaptive harvest management model back then. They were they were kind of more winging it, uh, and so we bounced around all over the place with how long the seasons were. And you, I mean, you got to think thirty day season goes really quick. Yeah, uh, and um, you know how many days did you actually get of good hunting weather in thirty days? Probably not very many. You know, where it was cold, the sun was out. I mean, you probably had a lot of days where the, you know, 75 degrees and cloudy, which are the worst. Um, and so you're you're already cutting 30 days down to, you know, maybe two weeks worth of actual huntable days. That's probably being gratuitous. Well, and then you've got, like, when most people can go, right? That's right. Like, most folks can't plan their lives around uh, – hunting every day at duck season. There's, right. there's lots of people that say they hunt every day at duck season and they're almost all liars. That's right. You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think you could, it would be a, a close, close race between who lies more like duck hunters or fishermen, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but so you start out like that very much like a lot of people in Arkansas, you're chasing green heads, you're hunting these, uh, these like nat. So at that time you're hunting naturally flooded. That's right. River bottoms. Right. Yep. Uh, and then, so I guess kind of last 50 years, the heyday of waterfowling in Arkansas would be kind of the 90s, maybe even like the latter half of the 90s, right? Uh, that, that there was still public guiding going, or guiding going on on public land. Yeah. Uh, this is before I was duck hunting, but, you know, I've heard stories about like the first couple years of Mojo's and that it was just like unreal. Yeah, that was 99, 2000. Yeah. Yeah, that's the last time we killed over a million mallards in Arkansas too. 
Really? Yeah. The 99-2000 season and I think the 2000-2001 season. Do you know what we're at now? Um, half that. Yeah. I want to say. I was um, thinking like 450 is uh, the last thing I I heard. keep all these stats. I'm like, I have a spreadsheet that keeps a, a, a ridiculous amount of knowledge. It probably isn't interesting to a lot of people but me. But, um, I mean, I, I've kept up with how many season days and what limits were dating all the way back, way back in time. Um, but I've got the – I get out of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife report where they – somehow extrapolate how many ducks that we kill. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they do that. They've got some mathematic model because nobody's going around counting every dead duck. Sure. But um, uh, we, we still lead the country in, in mallards harvested, but it's, it's a huge reduction from those days. Now that was, that was the benefit of some really wet years breeding wise. So breeding was cranking along pretty good. And then of course that spinning wing decoy uh, deal just, made anybody anybody could turn that thing on could kill a duck yeah and that's that's how it was there was no skill uh to that and that's that's another segue into what goes on in canada uh yeah, even at, at a small volume because of how many people hunt how many how many ducks and how many acres there are to spread out but you know yeah it's kind of interesting you see those videos of guys hunting in canada and, and they're blowing duck calls and I don't know why they're blowing their duck call they don't they don't need it I've done it I've been to Saskatchewan you don't you can leave your duck call at home yeah well you know it's, and I'm repeating information that uh that I've heard but you know it, I believe it's accurate is that uh so we're talking about spinning wing decoys or like mojos you'll hear a lot commonly referred to as mojos which is a brand uh but it's basically like a duck decoy with these motorized wings kind of looks like a you know, like a, a pinwheel from when you're a kid. Uh, yeah, I mean, just basically like that, but they have a motor on them. I mean, stuff like that has existed for a long time, just that was wind-driven. But when they put a motor on it, it uh, especially from a distance, it really emulates that kind of fluttering, flapping of a mallard's wings. And, uh, yeah, until ducks got really conditioned to it and used to it, it was just kind of like an on-button uh it was just visual cue they could key in, key in on from a long ways away and bring them in. Uh, but anyway, I've also heard that, that those, uh, those motorized decoys work exponentially better on first year birds too. Oh, so, sure. uh, yeah. So then especially if you're talking about having that activity happening at the top of the flyway, your, uh, juvenile birds, first year birds, are getting disproportionately uh, hunted. And then I've actually heard that within those juvenile birds, uh, the preponderance of, of the birds that are getting killed are actually females. Mm -hmm. Like it, for some reason it works almost, it works better on hen. So like first year hens than it does on drakes. And then, you know, like anyone who's familiar a little bit with wildlife management understands that uh, taking a, a breeding age female out of a population uh like you're you're actually you have to extrapolate all the babies that 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 a female could produce as opposed to like taking a male out uh doesn't impact the population near as much so and then us being arkansas being at kind of the bottom of the north american mississippi flyway kind of you know you'll hear people talking about the bottom of the funnel that does have uh you know that has effects if you're if you're uh, taking out a lot of the uh, 
juvenile birds, which, you know, younger, younger animals are usually kind of easier to fool. Right. Yep. Uh, so then you're getting fewer of those making it down the flyway. You're dealing with more seasoned birds, uh, cause a, a, a mallard can live for what? 20 years, 25 mm-hmm. years, something like that. Yep. So, you know, a bird that's made that trip 15 times is gets pretty educated. Uh, and I don't know, you know, maybe that does make for, I would like to think it makes for better hunters in Arkansas, but we were kind of discussing that's definitely not always right. the case. <laughs> right. No, that's true. Uh, yeah. You know, and what's interesting too, is a lot of the science community doesn't believe that, that hunters are impacting, you know, hunter mortality isn't impacting the population at all. It's a, it's basically a non-factor, which logically doesn't make any sense doesn't to me um and not that i'm i'm trying to poke holes in science but you would think the more hens you would send back to camp because the hens have a hard enough time as it is they get smoked on the nest Mm -hmm. by predators um they they face so many obstacles to surviving year to year um that you know, we as hunters, if we're talking about these last couple, this is four seasons in a row that a lot of people would say it's the worst four seasons of my my life, um, despite probably not remembering when they were a kid in the '80s and you know we were killing two, we could kill two mallards a day back then, um, but they uh, you know complain about not, they're not enough ducks, but they're not discriminatory in whether they're shooting hens or not because in Arkansas we can kill two hens. Um, you would think they would make some adjustment to that and, and what, what would it hurt? You can't tell me you're going to hurt hunter satisfaction by taking away a hen. Mm-hmm. People aren't satisfied anyway. Uh, hens aren't making the difference in whether they're, they're satisfied on the hunting season or not. Yeah. People put, I mean, people put hens, uh, in the back of the, the, the lanyard when they're hanging them for pictures. No doubt. No doubt. Now if they, but in the culture we're in right now, if it ensures that you're going to shoot a limit, People are shooting hens, and that's that's the hard part about where I think where we are with with some of this is in that goal of we got to limit out, we got to limit out so I can put it on Instagram. Yeah. You know that whole deal, this this kind of this limit out culture we're in. Um, the hens are definitely getting uh, targeted more, or not, or, or definitely not laid off in that in that goal to reach a limit during tough tough conditions because if the conditions were great we'd all be shooting all greenheads no doubt about it but if they're not but i still got to shoot a limit so if it comes in and we got hens left go ahead and get them well you know i i do wonder too uh you know i had to get to a i had to get to a certain level of skill before i could like really effectively pick ducks out you know, yeah, uh, sure. It's even harder in Canada. Oh yeah, they're not. A lot of them haven't changed over, and yeah. so a big wad comes in, and you may drop a drake, but it'll you pick it up, and it'll look exactly like a hen, featherwise, which mm-hmm. would be that's what you'd be picking out as it came in. So, you know, a lot of them do get taken because there's there's a lot of times there's no way to tell what you're shooting at, so you're just shooting. Uh, yeah, which it, I mean, there's so many layers to all of this stuff. Uh, but yeah, so we should probably actually back off about before we start <laughs> lamenting Arkansas duck hunting culture and, uh, 
you alluded to it when you were you first started uh, talking about when you when you began hunting, but uh, you were talking about like the culture surrounding duck hunting, and I I do think that's something like I've talked to John Stevens, I've talked to Josh Raggio, I've talked to a lot of people that are uh, kind of proponents of like the historical culture of American duck hunting, kind of like the folk art roots of it as far as decoy carving mm-hmm. and uh, and call making, which is something that I'm super, super interested in myself. Uh, but yeah, what parts of that did you find really attractive or you found an allure to that, that kind of helped cement you, you know, as a duck hunter is like in as part of your personal identification. Right. Well, I mean, as you know, duck hunting is a, is a social sport. So there, there's that element to it. Um, cause there were traditions at that, that club I referenced earlier, Crockett's bluff, you know, pre hunt, there was this tradition post hunt. There was, and I wasn't old enough to drink them, but I'd mm-hmm. see these, these men, these, these kind of corporate giants, so to speak, you know, post hunt bloody Mary and just the, you know, the, the dialogue and the, and all the talk. And then these, you know, these big breakfasts, these big meals, um, the lodges, um, the, you know, the, you, that you got to spend a lot of time in cause there's a lot of downtime in duck hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, you know, the history part, they were, uh, I have vivid memories of these, these big photo, um, albums, you know, hunts dating back to, you know, the sixties long before I was born, you know, sixties, fifties and sixties, uh, just, just cool stuff that uh that you just kind of kind of felt f- fascinated by this life this this waterfowling lifestyle so to speak uh, and i don't think anybody back then did it as the way we do it now you know p- people have dedicated their whole life i mean that's all they do uh back then that was pretty rare if you were a guide you probably did something else uh, besides you know a lot of more farmers are are in the ag world but um now you know people have built personal brands and things around it. Um, to back back then, there, that really wasn't the case. So these guys, they were just they were just duck hunters, and, and I just thought that was super cool. Yeah, uh, and you've referenced it a few times. Do you? This is just like a a question about how you personally look at it. Do you look at it as? Do you think more of like a sporting activity or a? Because. Because sometimes, I, I mean, it doesn't really feel like a sport to me, but, uh, but that might be because maybe I've got some kind of ingrained prejudices against sports. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, what, do, you, do you think of it as, a, as like a lifestyle decision or a leisure activity or like kind of we talked about before, there is this, especially here in the South, uh, it, it does oftentimes serve as like a – I don't know, like a corporate retreat kind of atmosphere in some of these bigger, more well-established clubs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, how do you kind of view it? I, I kind of look at it a couple of different ways. Um, there's definitely a sport element to me. It, and, and by that, I mean it, there's a, it's a competition as to whether I can fool that bird on this day. Okay. Um, and so uh, – I definitely see see it that way, it, it, and I don't mean that in a, in a bloodthirsty way. It's more like, I mean, you're chasing a, a wild animal that breeds somewhere else, spends most of its time somewhere else, but ends up here, and you got to figure out how to to harvest it 
mm-hmm. um, and the days that you you win, so to speak, you know, is pretty satisfying. Um, there's plenty of days you don't win, um, and there's plenty of days you kind of tie. You know, yeah, you can yeah. look at it that way, but um, there's definitely that element. There's a, there's a great amount of satisfaction to the days that that you trick them because um, they're they're pretty smart, and and you got to have all you know some conditions line up. You got to do some things right. You can. You can make a bad call and when when to take the shot. You could uh, do a lot of things, one more one more pass kind of deal, then you don't get them. Yeah. So uh, there's definitely that element, but there's a, the, the lifestyle element of it too uh, is is pretty intriguing to me. Um, not only the history part, but even the, the current day, just the the atmosphere and and time I can either spend with my kids. My wife even goes a few times a year. Uh, have a lot of really close friends, and, and I made a lot of friendships through through duck hunting too um so uh, all that kind of adds up as to why i i do it and how i kind of how view the, the sport if you want to call it the sport of waterfowling but um the activity of it uh and it's a getaway too um you know we don't have a there's no phone at our duck club there's no internet um at ours so you can kind of d- distance i mean you still have a cell phone of course and you're you're reachable but um it is a good good way to get away, kind of outside the big city, so to speak. Um, so there's an element too. There's there's just a lot of factors to it for me, and it definitely goes way beyond uh, the, the the killing part. Um, I rare, very rarely post pictures online anymore of you know pile picks. Yeah. Um, I I just I, I, anybody can post those things. Now, if it's a unique experience or I've hunted with somebody unique or something unique happened on the hunt, yeah, I'll do that. But the daily pile pick, I, I think that's kind of tired and I, I, I kind of stale to me because you can go through Instagram and you can scroll through bunches of them and it's the same picture. It's a bunch of dudes standing over a bunch of dead ducks and yeah. I've, I've kind of moved past that, so to speak. For me, that's, that's some people, if you're in the guide business, something like that. You, I mean, you got to show that you you can produce. I, I get all that. I'm not I'm not hating on it. I, I, to me, I've just moved past that. Um, I, I would say I'm not as angry as as I used to be. Yeah, you, you know, I actually think that's worth addressing. Uh, and I'll I'll be the one to go out on a limb here and and make some more definitive statements about like the pile pick culture. So that's something that, like, you know, a lot of people that would listen to this might follow me on Instagram. And that's something you, you pretty much don't ever see on my social media accounts. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one is because, you know, if you're really following the letter of the law, a lot of those pile picks are, uh, are, uh, are not legal. You're supposed to have your birds... Uh, you know, if, if you're in a picture with, if a single person's in a picture with five limits of birds, uh, you know, an argument could be made that they are over a possession limit, right? So that's just, as far as playing by the letter of the law, I like to try and do stuff as right as possible. Um, also, there is, uh, and I've kind of thought about this uh, and talked to some people about this. You know, we view birds... And as humans, we, use, we view birds and fish very differently than we, than we view mammals, right? So I think that most people kind of have a, an ingrained ethical sense about how you're supposed to treat animals that have eyelashes, right? 
And I think a lot now, even though there is still in the South, there's like a culture of like doing deer drives and you might see pictures occasionally of like more than one deer, uh, like on a tail, on a tailgate. I think that a lot of people would find if you took deer and you display them the way people display ducks, they would find that kind of distasteful or off-putting or something wrong with it. Right. Uh, and I'm not trying to get too precious with any of this, but I do like to try and uh, just evoke a sense of respect because to spend as much time uh, pursuing ducks and geese as I do, to spend as much time learning about them as I do, you know, uh, I, and it's kind of weird to talk about having love for something that ultimately you're like facilitating this demise, but I really do feel like I have a tremendous amount of respect and love for these animals. And so I, I do want to present that to, uh, to the public in a way uh, that's demonstrable of that. Uh, and so that's kind of a long-winded way of saying that some of this pile pick slash, you know, limits with a Z culture is just a little icky. And, and I don't know that it actually does us any good as hunters and as part of the hunting community as, as we become more and more of a minority in uh, the larger society, right? Uh, so that's my little soapbox speech about it. Uh, that was me saying that, not Brent Birch. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm also going to go out on a limb here and say this. I would, uh, I would like people to stop taking pictures of ducks with, uh, like, holding ducks in their mouth with their beaks in their mouth. It's Right, right. I'm just not into it. And, like, I know some people that I think are good people that uh, have done that before, but I think that's just, like, distasteful and... Uh, yeah, I just don't, I don't think there's a, there's a reason for it, you know. Uh, if I do post pictures of ducks, I like to post pictures of ducks that, like, aren't all shot up, that still, I mean, because you're talking about, you're talking about something that's as pretty as an animal can get, oh, yeah. you know. No doubt. Uh, and that's, like, one of my favorite things is, I mean, you know, to, to hold a green head and look at the iridescence and look at the speculum feathers and stuff. So I just try and present it, like, best foot forward most of the time. Uh and then, yeah, I could wax poetic about my whole ethos and whole bird usage and all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, I think that's worth keeping in mind, uh, you know, whenever possible and to, to some degree, uh, just some mindfulness involved in that. But, uh, man, so I've kind of segued into that, but and we were talking about it a little bit before. But so you've grown up with this this kind of this uh, this love of this like old timey waterfowling culture here in the south, you know, so I'm I'm. I'm thinking and imagining like, you know, like the smell of tobacco and bourbon and like, you know, wood grain stuff and leather and just all these kind of evocative American images. Right. So. And like we talked about before, too, like we, we all kind of have our own ideas about the right way to do things. So uh, if you're comfortable, I'd love to hear. Uh, I'd love to hear maybe just some of your ideas about uh, best case waterfowling. Like what's some of the stuff that you think might be getting lost a little bit or overlooked with this, uh, with, you know, like social media uh, kind of showboat culture that you'd like, uh, if you could wave a magic wand that you would get people back to. Right. Well, I, you know, wing start, I think this is a, 
a, a very good case in point and, and you chase specklebellies um, I chase specklebellies have for a while I'm not I'm not a nouveau guy to it I've been doing it 10 years or so um, we've gotten I think and, and some people probably will uh, be uh, very much in disagreement or angry about what I'm about to say but I think what we've happened, what has happened regarding speculation, because Arkansas, the, there's no question, speculation capital of the world. Um, we we, uh, you know, we we uh, are the winter home for a lot of those things. Yeah, and they're they're awesome, unbelievable to hunt. Great table fare. Everybody everybody knows that. Um, you know, they, they in field hunting in Arkansas has gotten tough, uh, and uh, that uh, the speculation has allowed people that don't have access to to woods something to, to shoot at. Now, a lot of it, unfortunately, is uh, past shooting going over their duck decoys because um, mm-hmm. they, they haven't learned how to hunt them yet. There's not a lot of do-it-yourselfers uh, out there hunting geese, but but there are a, a lot of outfitters, uh, and, and, and I know you do some of that too, uh, specifically chasing speckle-bellies. Uh, but we've gotten – now all of a sudden we've, we're wintering all of these birds, and there's a lot of habitat for them in Arkansas. Uh, where our, our duck habitat's probably taken a step back. Uh, you don't have as many farmers flooding fields. Well, guess what? Geese don't require flooded fields. They'll go sit in a dry field and peck away at food all day long. Yeah. Uh, so the outfitters have come out of the woodwork. Uh, and uh, it's a, you know, a 15, 20 gun hunt kind of deal. How anybody knows what they shot. I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, I've gone on them. I've done it. Most of the time I don't shoot. I just watch, um, because I got invited or it was, it was something I needed to be able to take a big group of people. Um, and it, it's conducive to that and it's, and it's helped supplement some struggling duck hunting, like I was saying, but these, uh, kind of spray and pray hunts, um, they're going to be in the long run, they're going to be tough on the resource and there's already some telemetry data and some science back in that. Uh, I don't know if you saw the recent ducks unlimited article. Mm-mm. Well, the one the cover, the cover of that magazine is a speckle belly and it says something about chasing specks is the article. And it goes into, uh, you know, how the popularity of how speckle bellies become such a pop- popular sport bird to hunt. And of course, Arkansas was the number one destination and, but in the top five, desti- all the destinations were um, what you'd expect, California, uh, Kansas, Texas, which, you know, a lot of these birds used to be in Texas uh, that we get. But the interesting one on there was Indiana. Well, so everybody, everybody's like, why the hell, how, how the hell the speckle is going to Indiana? And I know this to also be true in North, North uh, Missouri, because I have a, a close friend that lives here that uh, they grew up there and they, they never saw speckle bellies ever until a couple years ago. Well, the telemetry data is showing some of those birds that are going to Indiana were in Arkansas until the shooting started. Yeah. And so when the shooting started, they went and found habitat, which, you know, everywhere there's acres and acres of dry fields, grain fields, you know, geese don't require, they then go roost on some lake and they'll go sit in those dry fields and eat, which there's bazillion acres all through all the way up Canada and beyond. So the hunting pressure that we're starting to put on these birds, uh, it's going to, it's going to impact, um, before the DIYer ever gets a chance to do it and figures out, man, I want to really don't know how to hunt speckle bellies. Those birds are going to, if we continue on the route we're on and we keep producing, uh, 
you know, these 15, 20 gun hunts, we're going to, we're going to run that resource off. Um, and, and so that's a, that's a pretty big one for me. Now that doesn't impact a lot of people because a lot of people don't speculate hunt unless they're paying somebody for an afternoon hunt to, to fill some time in. That's sure. pretty common. Um, and, or they need to take a bunch of people because you can, you can, you can take a bunch of people and hide them and, and all this. But I think if we don't get a grip on some of that, especially if we go back to 72 days and three geese, you know, we've been on 88 days and two geese for two years. Mm-hmm. And that's when all these outfitters came out of the woodwork because 88, 88 days, and I, if I can get $200 a gun over 88 days, it's pretty good. Well, now I would suspect when we go back to 72 days and three geese, that just raise the rates, still make a good amount of money. And, but now we're, now we're clipping an extra goose and we're shooting into, ex, you know, extra big groups of geese. Cause you know, they're hunting, you know, however many thousand decoys they're putting out. Yeah. So they're hunting big groups of spreads geese. Spreads have gotten bigger for sure. The, the spreads are huge. And so they're, they're attracting bigger wads of geese. Uh, you can call it educating geese, whatever you want to call it. But uh, I guess that's the point I'm making. You, you, we can't continue to shoot into those big, huge groups of geese and think that they're going to stay in Arkansas. Yeah, they'll go find somewhere else that that people aren't putting near the pressure on them. And if and if that article saying that they're showing up in Indiana now isn't a red alert, you know, I don't know what is. Um, so that's that's a tough one. That's uh, a that's one going on right now. Um, and a lot of it, unfortunately, and this is probably the controversial thing I'll say about it. A lot of it is it's a lot of take and not much give. Um, by that meaning, I, I don't know how many of them are putting back into the resource uh, or into the habitat. It's more of a, I'm going to rent this field for the day. I've seen geese on it. I'm going to go knock on a door. I'm going to hunt this field. I'm going to shoot it until the geese aren't used anymore. And then we'll go on to the next one and then the next one and the next one and the next one. And whether that is, uh, whether that they're, they're doing anything that is beneficial to the resource or not, uh, that's really hard to tell. And if I'm wrong, I, I, I'd, I'd be open ears to, to hear how, what the give back is, um, for a lot of these guys. Um, cause I, I, I'm just not seeing it. So, you know, you're actually giving me quite a bit of food for thought. Uh, so yeah, I'd say that like the first speckle belly hunt I went on was like a 10 gun kind of layout hunt. Right. And I've done, uh, I've done that, uh, Last year, we kind of started to move away from that and started doing some A-frame hunting, uh, which was it's a different kind of hunting, too. You know, so you're, it's, uh, it was moved away from hunting feeds as much, started trafficking birds a little bit more, uh, smaller decoy spreads, a lot more calling, calling involved, right? Uh, and it's – I like it better. You know, I figured out that I liked, uh, I liked having smaller groups of hunters. So, like we were talking about, like I've, mm-hmm. I've started doing it last year, and this year I'm going to continue it where I cap my, cap all my hunts at five people, uh, and yeah, if we get back to kind of the ickiness factor, and look, a lot of this stuff with hunting is, you know, for better or for worse, this is a, it's a learning process, right? So you might learn to do something in one way uh, because a lot of hunting is emulating the, the first way you were shown it, right? And then you develop your own ethos and ethics around it and decide what works best for you and just kind of how you want to 
conduct yourself in the world and move through it. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I've talked to, a, you know, a lot of outfitters. I'm not really like an outfitter, right? Like I, I run a half dozen weekend hunts a year, right? but I, I deal with a lot of outfitters and yeah, it is, there's a, uh, there's a freneticism to it, right? It's the chasing the birds. Uh, I don't hear as much about like giving birds a break, you know? Uh, and I, I, I have seen it. I've seen it change in the last three years with, with speckle bellies. Three years ago, there still weren't a ton of people pursuing them. That's right. right. Uh, but every year that the duck cutting got tougher and more and more people started saying like, you know, I'm not really, I'm, I'm leasing these rice fields and I'm not really seeing a lot of ducks there, but I'm seeing a lot of specks fly overhead. Uh, and so I started seeing folks that were like, I'm going to get a dozen spec decoys and start blowing a call very badly. Yep. And, you know, like you said, trying to pass shoot them. Uh, and so, especially in Arkansas, a place where uh, there's a lot of economy involved in waterfowl, I do wonder how we balance it, you know, because someone might hear what you're saying, some outfitter, you know, just anywhere in East Arkansas would say, uh, man, this is how I'm feeding my family. You know, I'm out here trying to make a living. Yeah. You know, you're corporate rich guy hunting or whatever, and uh, I've got to stay on birds, right? Uh, so what would, and I, you might not have an answer for this, and, uh, but I'd be interested, and this would be a good segue too into talking about uh, how some of that private land uh, does facilitate like giving back uh, to the resource as far as ducks. What do you think could be done uh, specifically for speckle bellies to facilitate that, like to give back more to the resource? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and to clarify, I'm, I'm all for somebody making a buck. I, I'm not uh, disagreeing. Yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not accusing you uh, yeah, of that. I'm just, yeah, yeah. we talked about, sure. We talked about waterfowling. And I mean, if you wrote what you, if you put what you just said in an internet forum, that's a, I'm just, uh, I'm just uh, playing devil's advocate because that's immediately what oh, the, no doubt. the keyboard warriors would No, no would question. With. No question. And, and I'm all for it. I mean, guides and outfitters have been around forever. Mm -hmm. um, I just I, I think there's a right way to do it. And I think you could – probably the best way they could give back the resource because they don't necessarily have the um, – it may not have the means. They don't have the access to the land. And, and not that – goose hunting ground requires a lot of work, not like ducks do, not, not anywhere close. Um, you'll see those things sitting in the most random fields, um, and you, it doesn't make sense as to why, um, where you see ducks sitting in a, you know, in certain places, and you go, oh, well, that's because, you know, X. Um, it probably, it's, it's more of controlling what you control as far as an, an outfitter goes, because the people that are showing up, they're just showing up to shoot. I yeah. get that. Yeah. Uh, they don't, they're, they're not invested in the long-term health of the speckle belly population. Um, and, and there may be a lot of people that way the same on the duck side. You just don't see the, like the volume of, of hunters on one hunt. So probably the optimal thing they could do, uh, just kind of off the top of my head is, is take those same 15 guns, but maybe break up your groups. I mean, there's, so much ground to hunt and i understand you're going to have your 
A feed and your B feed and your C feed that you're trying to get the geese to come off of or come to. And, uh, but if you're sticking around out there for 15, 20 gun limits and, and, and a lot of them will say, well, we kill them in the first 30 minutes anyway, which it, with a two goose limit, that that's probably true. If you, you work a couple of big groups and you yeah, got it's some, doable. you got some sure. killers in there, you, you can do it. Um, but if you were able to maybe spread those groups out, everybody knows what they shot. First of all, it's a better client experience. I would think, um, <laughs> you can uh get in and out of there quicker uh you're not throwing up you know you're not going to the plug on every group trying to trying to get that 30 minute hunt in mm-hmm. um to to alleviate some of this pressure we're putting on putting on these birds cuz you think about it, we hunt them pretty much from the day they get here yeah it's like halloween to the last day of january yeah and and we <laughs> hunt them pretty much straight through and that's i mean that that's not good. That's not sustainable. It's just not. Um, and, and everybody will say, well, I drive down the highway and, and all I see are fields just loaded with those things and loaded with those things. And, um, but there's some, there's some science out there that is a little hazy on where their population is. Despite what we see with our eyeballs, it's kind of the inverse of ducks. You know, the, the science kind of says, the duck population is okay. It, I mean, it's fine. We don't need to reduce season. We don't need to reduce limits. But we, with our eyeballs, we're not seeing them like yeah. like we think we should. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of working the opposite with the, the speckle bellies. I'm seeing thousands of those things in, in a field here. And then I'll drive another mile down the road. There's another couple thousand in that field. But there were some numbers off. Now, of course, they didn't get to do the, the, the breeding ground surveys. But there was a pretty good gap in what they thought we're going to be heading south and what they counted in the midwinter surveys. So, or is the, where are those missing geese kind of thing? Hmm. Um, and so there's some, there's some buzz, a little bit of buzz in the science community about that. And, and I'm talking, you know, in the range of 400,000 geese counts were differed in, in, really? in that much. And then you think about it, that's a lot of birds. Um, so where are those geese? Were the, were the counts not right? Were they somewhere we weren't flying over? I don't know, but there, like I said, there's a little bit of buzz in that, and uh, and are they not reproducing as fast as we thought they do? Do they not pr- reproduce every year? Is it maybe a every two three year cycle? Because because the more speckled bodies have become popular in hunting, there's more science being invested in understanding more about them. You know, we've been really tracking ducks for a long time, science wise. So um, that's a little concerning. Are we uh, are we outpacing by these? these big party hunts and, and killing 2000 birds and 3000 birds a season out of, you know, you do that, multiply that over every outfitter. Um, are we harvesting them faster than they can reproduce? I don't know. I, you know, the, the word was there weren't going to be a lot of young geese in this fall flight. And I saw tons, tons of young birds. Did you? Yes. Uh, and, and, and a lot were harvested early on too, in that early split, you know, the early season. You know, I didn't, I didn't start seeing young birds until probably the second half of the season. Yeah. We saw a bunch, a bunch. Cause it was, it was, it was noticeable cause you were expecting to go out there and see a bunch of mature birds, mm-hmm. um, because of what we've been told that, that, uh, they had kind of a tough year, um, breeding wise, but I didn't see that, um, Saw a lot of young birds, but, um, you know, that, that missing 400,000 geese is a little concerning if that's accurate. 
Yeah, man, that's really, that's a lot of food for thought. Uh, really, it's really, it's it, getting back to that. What a, what an outfitter can do, like I said, can't control them, but it, it is, it is that control the controllables thing. Um, you know, if we can somehow you can make the same amount of money, but, but back that pressure down, um, we, we need to start looking at it that way. Um, maybe the 15, 20 gun hunts become five gun hunts spread out over three different fields. Cause I know they all got access to a bunch of ground if they're, if they're worth their salt. Now there's a bunch that have, that have come up that don't have access to a bunch. They maybe have a little family farm and mm-hmm. that's where they got to, everybody's got to run through there. And, and that's not going to, that's not going to be sustainable for them they'll, If they try to do that every day, they'll, they'll shoot the geese off their farm. But these ones that have access to big expansive acres, they can split up and, and quit trying to, to, to do the hero 15, 20 gun hunt limits by seven thirty or whatever it is and start looking at, I'll take these five or six guns to this farm. You take five or six guns to this farm and I'll take five or six to the, this other farm and we'll still all be done same amount of geese, but we got in and out of there faster. We didn't shoot in as many big wads and still kill the same amount of geese. And we still had the same number of clients. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, if I'm being honest with you, I don't know that people will do that unless they're made. I know. You oh, know? no, I agree. I do. Uh, I, I, I totally get that. Um, but, I mean, I, there are ways that, that we can do this better, I think, to sustain it longer. Um, you, you, just, you just, I mean, if you think the geese, I'm sure people once upon a time never thought the geese would leave Louisiana. Oh, no, they, they are didn't. gone. Yeah. They are gone. I mean, I've got, a, I've got a good friend that I hunt with a lot, and he left. He's from Baton Rouge, and he left Baton Rouge four years ago and moved up here to East Arkansas uh, purely because of speckle bellies. Yeah. For, so he could guide speckle bellies. He was driving a dump truck the rest of the year, and then he would guide speckle bellies all year long. I mean, he's like giving his life over to it. Uh, and you can't blame it all on habitat. I know Louisiana's gone through some habitat issues, uh, and so is South Texas. I get that. They don't farm as much rice as they used to, and the rice they did, and now it's crawfish ponds. I, yeah. I, 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 I know all of that, um, of speed on all of that. But you can't say it's all habitat. Um, so really? You, you think it's you think it has a lot to do with hunting pressure? I, it's got to be a factor. And, and, and maybe it is a – and it's probably a – I don't think maybe. It's a byproduct of – probably us, Arkansas, not putting as much rice ground and, and other uh, ag into a duck-friendly habitat mm-hmm. and have left it dry mm-hmm. or it's sheet water. And, you know, the geese found it. So, man, why do I got to go all the way to Louisiana? I, I can just stop here. And it just kept building and building. Um, so, I mean, there's lots of factors. It's not all pressure-driven, but it's got to be some. But, to, but my point being is if you you, you don't think that they will – shift somewhere else for some reason you'd be naive um and if 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 it's for us it's not gonna be habitat then it's gonna be pressure yeah well you know i mean waterfowl by their very nature are ephemeral right uh it's one of the things that people like about them yeah uh but you know as human beings we also we want things to stay the same and they very rarely do and especially with waterfowl right uh, I mean, yeah, people probably for the last five or 10 years in Arkansas have been lamenting, uh, duck hunting culture here talking about like the hunts haven't been as good. It's, there's too many people hunting. There's too many people from out of state hunting. There's not as many birds. 
private grounds holding all the birds. Uh, some of this is just, I, I actually think that a lot of people wouldn't uh, duck hunt if they, if they couldn't uh, complain about stuff. I think that's <laughs> part of what they like. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, what you're taught, you're really speaking to the idea that to be good ethical stewards of this resource that we've got to really maintain a lot of flexibility. Uh, so here's a question I'd ask you that I just, someone has asked me this before, but uh, you've got so much invested, so much of your identity and your time and your thought processes, right? You've got spreadsheets and all this on your, <laughs> on your computer. If, if someone could wave a magic wand and they, they said to you, uh, you can't ever, you can't ever shoot another duck again. You can't ever shoot another goose again. But uh, for every 10 years that you don't do that, that'll guarantee 10 years of good, healthy populations and good quality duck hunting in Arkansas. Would you make that deal with the devil? Um, no, probably not. Because um, I think the hunter plays a big role in that. Um, you know, the, it's it's been pronounced you know, more than once that hunters make the best conservationists kind of deal so no 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 i just mean you brent birch can't do it everybody else can hunt oh you just, just me can't. yeah um uh, no probably not <laughs> okay probably good not. that's a good honest answer yeah i mean i mean it, yeah i mean it's it's definitely part of you know however you want to say it part of who i am um kind of deal uh now you know if the limit dropped to two ducks would i still do it yeah Mm -hmm. if the season went to 30 days would I still do it yeah um now part of I did it when I was a kid I don't have the same investment in it and I'm not talking about money I don't have the same emotional and 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 physical in, in uh, investment in it as I did as a kid kid as a kid I just kind of went yeah you know, now you know I spend a, a significant part of the off season duck farming um you know I don't farm the farm we hunt but I uh I definitely invest the the sweat and 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 hours strategizing how to do it and do it better. Um, you know, trying to farm for ducks. Um, the ag that you have there is, are you, are you? Is any of it traditional ag, or is it all for uh, waterfowl? It's that this particular farm is is definitely skewed towards waterfowl okay um it's it's not like your your typical farm you would see on the prairie there's uh I, it's small that it's about 240 acres but uh i think there's about 12 acres that's kind of a zero grade mm -hmm. um the previous owner um had had done it it's got a little bit of it's not a true zero grade but it's as close as you're gonna get um everything else it's pretty pretty rough farm ground uh with two two moist soil units that that are in uh, within the framework of the farm uh, but it, i mean it is it is definitely a duck focused effort um there uh because uh, to me modern day waterfowling you, you almost have to if you if you were a a i got to make as much money off this farm operation it's probably not going to in today's world it's probably not going to be that great for the ducks uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're uh, you're gonna zero grade it. Well, mallards, you know, mallards aren't loving the zero grade. Um, you'll have speckle bellies. Uh, you'll have a bunch of teal. 
Spoonbill, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But uh, being able to track mallards, uh, it's just got to be a little more raw um, than than modern modern farming practices allow. Um, so yeah, no efficient uh, farmer is going to want anything to do with our place. <laughs> do you see Do you see any benefit to other species doing that? Yeah, what do you mean? I mean, uh, I mean, do you see, do you see like benefit to, and maybe I'm misunderstanding, but you know, like, uh, quail hunting in Arkansas has been like tremendously affected by a change in agricultural mm-hmm. practices, right? Like field rows, uh, you know, or just, uh, ag going from edge of the field to the edge of the field. There's not those brush lines or anything like that. So if you've got, uh, you know, if you have kind of like more undulation in the land and I'd imagine you. I mean, are you dealing with all crop or do you still have like coffee bean and all that stuff mixed in? So do you see any benefit to other wildlife or are you paying attention? um, uh, Yeah. I mean, definitely we, and, and you would see this uh, place and you would not think deer ever wanted wanted to cross it, see quite a few deer and got Mm -hmm. some pretty good deer on camera, not during the daytime. Sure. Uh, But uh, we're we're real close to Biomeda, not the wildlife management area, the actual waterway. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, of course we've got beavers and, uh, in fact, we just had a trapper this week cause they've done some pretty, pretty extensive damage to some of our ways to move water. Um, but I've seen coyotes, seen foxes, uh, doves, uh, I mean, it, it kind of draws all kinds of stuff. Um, so yeah, I think there is some benefit to it still being in a more native state, probably as close as it could be yeah. in modern modern time it's uh it, the farm has a it's an old cypress break uh mo- which a majority of, on it is the farm to the south of us but it, it was all cleared at one time okay so it's not it doesn't look like a cypress break now but if you see a, a topo map you can see where it was mm-hmm. and there's the very top of it is on our farm and then the very bottom of it where it loops back around like crescent moon kind of deal gotcha the very bottom of it is on our farm in both of those natural areas even though they are nothing like they originally were that's where the ducks go it, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is in a rice field. The The southern tip of it is a rice field. The ducks still go to that where that tip is. That is where they go. They don't go up, up this side of it, that side of it. They go to where that, that old draw was at the end of that break. And then they come to the, the upper one uh, that that's, uh, is a more soil unit now, but but the previous owner put a, put a levee through the middle of it. It's got a blind that sits in the middle of it. So it's not like it was way back when, but that is that's where the ducks go. Yeah. There's still condition to go to that something little about spot. it. Yeah. Something about it is a is a magnet for them, um, and so that's what's happened over time, especially in Arkansas. Is so much of this has gotten so far away from what it used to be, mm-hmm. um, especially on the ag side. Now a lot of timber, the you know the remaining chunks of it that there are, they're in their state, and they're in fact they're even improved for wildlife because now they've put levees in, they can manage the water, and it's never too high, never too low, uh, all that. I'm talking about private ground, um, that, uh, it's a probably better for wildlife than it used to be. Um, because there's places for them to get up and out of the water where a long time ago, big, big, huge rains put water everywhere and they everywhere. had no place to go. Yeah. Well, now that that's all manageable, uh, for the most part. Uh, even though there's some, there's some really good places and some really famous clubs that, that still have a hard time managing water. They just, there's just no way to do it if if we get a big rain, you know, you know, ten inch rain kind of deal, or sixteen inch rain like we had last spring. Yeah, um, water's gonna water's gonna find a way. That's right. Sure. That's right. So, um, 
yeah, that wildlife is kind of bunched up um, because there's not just a lot of that natural way the land used to be left. Um, and I think we've, in Arkansas, I think we've paid the price for that a little bit duck-wise. Yeah, you know, that's interesting that they're, those ducks are still going to that place that used to be. I, you know, I wonder, you know, you talk about like animal imprinting on like routes and places. I wonder, you probably could never actually, there's probably no way to actually discern that, but it does make me just sit around and wonder like how many successive generations of greenheads have been coming down from Canada and ending up in that spot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, man, well, real quick, because uh, we've already kind of talked for an hour, but uh, I'd love to hear, so the book you wrote, The Grand Prairie, mm -hmm. right? And so The, the Grand Prairie uh, is, I mean, I, I, I learned a ton from this book. This was like my introduction to Brent. Uh, it came out, you said, in 2018, mm -hmm. right? And it's kind of like a documentation of all the towns that make up uh, the Grand Prairie here in Arkansas. And so, like, the most famous place uh, – for folks outside of Arkansas would be like Stuttgart would be there where I'm at in Brinkley is actually like out. It would be outside according to your book. It's okay. outside the grand right. prairie. Right. So, uh, probably just before you get to me, uh, Hazen would kind of be like the northerly edge. Right. Mm -hmm. And then where I'm at in Brinkley, uh, would be what they called the back in the day, they called the big woods. Yeah. Right. But, uh, if you would real quick, that would be real quick, but, uh, there's a there's a couple of like bits of information from that book that I find myself repeating a lot, right? Like one of it being, and I might be misquoting, Paleolithic might be the wrong actual time frame word, but talking about finding these these uh, basically ancient trash piles from indigenous people mm -hmm. that were that was like a large percentage of them were like uh, were mallard bones, right? Uh, and it, and it kind of speaks to the fact that mallards have always come to Arkansas because of the natural cycles and the flooding up of these woods and the access to this uh, nutrient-rich uh, food source like acorns. And then also I think a lot of people don't think about uh, the other seeds and the invertebrates and stuff that they're getting access to. But uh, what kind of facilitated that book? Because it's, it, it has really kind of, uh, from what I've seen, it's kind of become like a, you know, probably one of the two or three textbooks of modernity about Arkansas duck hunting. Yeah, well, and that, that it is interesting that how, truly how long ducks have been coming here. You know, obviously the Mississippi River was the was probably the driving force, the the, mm -hmm. the kind of the the highway that they followed. But there was so much of that uh, hardwood bottomlands in East Arkansas once upon a time that there was in pretty much endless amounts of habitat for them. And then once, uh, you know, East Arkansas started shifting to ag and, and rice farming became such a deal, then the ducks had the best of everything uh, that they wanted. And so it, it is just perpetuated their attractiveness to this, like you said earlier, the, the bottom end of this funnel to where they've been coming for generations and generations to, to get everything they needed to winter. Um, and we've, we've somehow been able to sustain that, uh, over time and, and hence their desire to still come here. Uh, you know, some other States have started to, to manufacture a habitat, um, and, and that gets into the whole, um, short stopping of ducks and everything else. But I mean, there's nothing, nothing wrong with them, uh, doing, doing things to, uh, 
to uh, keep ducks from coming here. I mean, it's 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 not it's not something you could ever prevent. You, you no, never, absolutely You could not. never put yeah. the clamps on it. But uh, yeah, you know, it's it's crazy uh, to think even how long people have been coming here to hunt ducks. I mean, that the book uh, talks a lot about how big businessmen would come from all over the country by rail to Stuttgart to meet an outfitter um, and to go out the next morning to shoot ducks. And of course, back then for a a pretty decent time window until the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, I think that was 1918. Prior to that, you could shoot as many as you wanted to. Uh, So you think about just 100 years ago. Yeah, you want to talk about what pile picks used to look like. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and those have been around forever. Um, the book's full of them from, from numerous decades. Uh, so, I mean, pile picks are part of it. I get that. It's just, that's, that's all we're worried about nowadays, it seems. But, um, it, that's what developed the cultures because these, and they still do, people travel from all over the world to come hunt ducks and mainly to come hunt ducks in the trees. Cause you just can't, can't do it like we do it here. Yeah. And it's, it really is. It's hard. To, we don't need to go too far into this, but it's. Uh, it's like trying to, it's trying to describe what it's like to kiss a girl for the first time. Like you can't do it. And that's right. You know what I mean? It's just something kind of magical. It is. And, and, and that uniqueness is, is the big attraction. There are some other places. There's some pockets of places that you can, you can shoot ducks in the woods, but not, not like here. Mm -hmm. And that, that just created this mystique to the whole culture of Arkansas duck hunting. Um, and, and so the people that grew up here, um, it, it's woven into the fabric, um, from, from numerous demographics, um, um, uh, big part of business, you know, I, I wrote an article a few years ago in Greenhead, um, the magazine about how duck hunting is in Arkansas is equivalent of a, of a corporate golf outing yeah. know, for a lot of people. And, you know, we don't go meet up in, um, you know, have, have a few cocktails, lunch, then we'll, we tee off at one o'clock. It's come to the clubhouse, you know, night before we'll duck hunt, we'll have big breakfast the next morning. And, that, and a lot of business gets done in Arkansas. A lot of business gets done that way. Sure. Uh, versus at the country club. So, uh, that's how woven it is into our, our culture here as a state. Um, and, um, I, I, I don't think anyone, even today, and, and it may be a substandard handful of duck seasons for us, it's still better than most, most, you know, 99% of the world gets to hunt mallard ducks. It's still better here than it is anywhere else. Um, yeah. I saw that this, I had some friends come in from Virginia and we hunted and, you know, especially when you're inviting people to come, there's like, you feel this onus like to oh, yeah, really put no them on doubt. a good hunt. Right. And I was kind of, I was apologizing to him. I was like, man, this is kind of a little media to me. It's kind of a mediocre duck hunt. And, uh, he was like, he was like, man, I've never seen this many ducks in my entire life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, there's always spoiled. ducks flying. Yeah. I mean, call it spoiled. Our standards are really high, um, and maybe that comes with the duck capital of the world tag, but um, we still got it pretty good. And, and I'm not saying that these last handful of seasons have been great and 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 or not like it used to be or whatever, but it's it's still pretty good. Um, and, and maybe we got to temper our, our standard just a little bit you know, and, and get away from, like we talked about earlier, this, this limits mentality. Yeah. And, you know, maybe focus on, focus on some different parts of it and really finding value, uh, and kind of 
like the entirety of the experience, you know, which is not to plug what I'm doing, but that's important to me. You know, uh, it's, 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 it's honestly, it's one of the biggest parts of me pushing whole bird usage so much because especially like on a spec hunter something where you can only kill two birds. Uh, if you can, if you can really make the most out of that bird as table fare, you know, if you can get, instead of just getting poppers out of it or something, right. Mm-hmm. If you can get, uh, two to four, like really good meals to share with people that it elongates the entirety of the experience because every time you're, you're eating some of that bird, like you're, you're usually going to be sharing that with someone you care about. And that's an opportunity for stories. Right. And that's a big part of why people hunt. Uh, it's a big part of like kind of passing down this lineage and this heritage of it all. Uh, so yeah, maybe it's an opportunity to, uh, actually, you know, drive around with the duck call in your truck and get proficient at it instead of some of what I've seen, you know, like it was really important to me to get good on a duck call. Oh yeah. Right. For sure. Uh, that's part of the experience. Yeah. I, I, in fact, I had a really good friend that, uh, very serious duck hunter, um, that said he did not really hunt the last two weeks of season because the ducks had gotten kind of finicky. And so they weren't calling at him much and that for him, that's part of the experience. And so he just, he started tapering off how much he went. If he can't call them and the same thing about shooting them, yeah. If I can't call them and have them respond and react to, to me, uh, I'm not, I, that's not as interesting. Yeah. From my I mean, experience. It's right? part of, part of the romance yeah, of it. It right? is. It is. Uh, and, and like I've said this before and I've written it, like duck hunting, I think waterfowling, the way that I do it anyway, it's ultimately, it's, it's, it's a romantic experience, right? Like this is not a cost of, as much as I push the culinary side of it and as, as important as that is to me. I mean, I've got, we're eating speckled bellies tonight, me and my wife and my kids aren't, right? Uh, it's not a cost effective way, either monetarily or exertion of effort to feed oneself. It's a supplementary way to feed myself, but a cost effective way is like trapping coons and trapping beavers and shooting whitetail deer. Uh, you know, there is a richness of experience. There is a community based aspect to this that when you really get down to it is a big part of the attraction of it. So it might be time to focus on that a little bit more. Uh, and, and also I might leave us with this a little bit. Uh, I think oftentimes now, there's a lot of false bravado and this strange, uh, a strange uh, link to some sort of some idea of masculinity with like uh, killing ducks, and you see a lot of videos and it's like this uh, amplified guitar music and <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. yep. a lot of pictures, you know, like a lot of darkening of images to make people's faces seem like more grave and serious and whatever. Uh, it's, this isn't a war, right? This, this, <laughs> right. this isn't, uh, this is, uh, this is something that is supposed to ultimately be like, a a joyful kind of romantic community based experience in large part. Uh, and so it's, it's worth reminding ourselves of that and, and trying to keep some of that at the forefront of our minds, I think does, you know, help us remember to be good stewards, uh, allows us to be flexible uh, and to do what's best for the resource and best for the animals and, and hopefully, uh, best for the, 
the elongation of, you know, people being able to do this so that 50 years from now, uh, you know, maybe my daughters are talking about uh, going spec hunting and duck hunting with their dad, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because it's a, it's, it's a, as we all know, it's a very fragile resource. And just, just think we can kind of just churn and burn and it's just going to be around. That's pretty short-sighted. Um, and I think we've got a little bit too much of that in the sport yeah, you know, right now. For sure. Well, hey, uh, Brent, if folks want to get a hold of you and keep up with what you're doing, I know you've got Greenhead Magazine, but uh, why don't you tell folks how to – yeah, the uh, the book um, is available at ArkansasGrandPrairie.com. Um, you can get it Max as well. Um, most people probably listen to this podcast are familiar with Max Prairie Wings there in Stuttgart. Um, they they also carry it. Um, and then yeah, the the Greenhead the magazine comes out every August September ish, um, and you could uh, get a copy of that. Um, it's free. Uh, we I think they do charge a little bit for the shipping. Um, be picked up all around Arkansas um, at lots of places when it comes out, but you can get it at greenhead.net um, and you can even get on an annual subscription and get that. You don't have to think about it. It just shows up every year when it comes out, but um, a lot of fun to do those projects um, and, and keep everybody uh, up to speed with what's going on. Awesome. Well, Brent, thanks so much. Yeah. I appreciate you having me. Yep. Hey folks, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. Waterfowl dates are coming, I assure you. I'm still finishing up a few things, and like I said before, it's just taking a little bit longer to really hammer down the details uh, so I can make sure that I'm offering the experiences that I want to for everybody, but those will definitely be coming out this spring, so stay tuned on that. Also, as I've mentioned uh, in some of the previous podcasts, booking is open now for catfish excursions. That's when you and uh, a guest or a friend uh, join me for uh, a few days of catfishing, bird watching, talking about you know the the, the flora and the fauna of these places that I love so much, specifically in the Arkansas Delta. We'll, uh, we'll go after catfish by running limb lines, trout lines, yo-yos, kind of some more traditional southern methods that I'm a big fan of and are usually a way to uh, have a good meat haul and fill your freezer with some really fantastic wild-caught protein. If you want to keep up with what I'm doing, and like I said in a couple of podcasts earlier, uh, I will soon be embarking on a pretty serious turkey tour this spring and so the best way to keep up with that will be just by following me on instagram and that handle is just black duck revival or you can always go to the website check out my blog there's recipes and check out uh, dates for waterfowling stuff and book your catfish excursion by going to blackduckrevival.com if you want to take a look at hunts or fishing trips, just go to the Experiences tab and all that pertinent information will be available to you. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Until then.